Hey, my name's Louis, and welcome to. I'm just gonna go for it. Hey, I'm Louis, nutritionist and personal trainer, and it's my privilege to welcome you to Between Two Plates, the Strength Vitality podcast, where we discuss everything between gym plates and kitchen plates to do with fitness, nutrition, and mental health. This week, we have an incredibly special guest, none other than Dr. Gabrielle Fundero, or otherwise known as Vitamin PhD by her Instagram handle. Dr. Fundero is pioneering in her efforts to enlighten the whole industry as to what true evidence base is regarding the gut microbiome and its real application in practice. With a highly successful and extensive academic background, along with an extensive athletic background, including competing on stage and multiple powerlifting competitions, we're incredibly lucky to be able to get Gabrielle to speak here regarding her journey to her current position as Gut Health Wizardess and to be able to be educated on the truth around gut science, its present application, and what to be excited for in the future. Please accept my apologies for the technical snags with the audio at the beginning. Um, I'm still finding my feet technically. Fortunately, it didn't waver the awesome conversation, and especially by the hour mark, the audio takes its own daily hit of vitamin D and crystallizes up nicely. Thank you again. I'm really, really excited for you guys to listen to this, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Awesome. Okay, so uh, anyone listening, I'm going to apologize now for the fangirling that is about to commence. This is absolutely mad. Hello, Gabrielle. How are you? <laughs> I'm so good. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Um, I know we've spoken about this before, but where are you at right now in the States? I know you're all over the world. Yeah, I am in Mesa, Arizona right now, um, and I am uh, in the process of home buying, which yes. is you know, the sort of strange, but um, you know, when you're nomadic and you're supposed to be staying home, it's kind of like, well, you have to find one. So <laughs> you're looking very well. Are you keeping up your training? Is that something that you can do in, where you are in the States? Yeah, I have been, well, for a long time, I was doing just resistance band work um, and have kind of gotten back into, you know, just uh, cardiovascular conditioning. So, you know, I'm, I'm running a little bit more. I used to run quite often and I'm kind of like, oh, this is kind of a fun little project and lots of hiking. So Arizona has some of the best hiking in the States. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. And then um, recently got into some like social networks that uh, have access to home gyms. So oh, I've been wicked. You know, yeah, I kind of got like that friends and family. Uh, well, really just friends. I don't have family out here, but yeah. So making some friends and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, just still trying to, to be cognizant of the safety aspect. But yeah, so I finally have touched a barbell for the first time. <laughs> in it's very exciting. Because your, your background is like, you've got um, powerlifting, uh, you've got competing, you've got a massive like, athletic background as well as academic, right? <laughs> I guess, I mean, I, I, I guess I just dabble in a lot of things. Um, my, I've, I've been passionate about lifting since I was like 19. So that's been sort of a constant, just, okay. you know, how that manifests is different based on what other kind of sport I might be into. So um, I did uh, jujitsu for close to a year and then transitioned into um, I'm training for, you know, a women's physique show. And then from there I went into powerlifting and then the past couple of years, it's been more of kind of finding ways to 
adapt my training while traveling a whole bunch. And then, you know, including hiking and whatnot, because if you're going on like a six hour hike, that's going to be really fatiguing and, you know, trying to manage that while also, um, training and, you know, making, making progress. So yeah, just kind of like finding a, a way to make it maybe less about sport and more about just lifestyle. Okay, cool. That's really interesting because that sort of links into your, um, reading the bridging the gap. It's less about almost like the outcome. It's that process along the way, which is amazing. Yes. Um, but the, <laughs> so the, right. So the first thing we'll get out of the way, which is the elephant in the room. Loads of people will be listening to this. Like how has Gabrielle ended up on this podcast? <laughs> so <laughs> I reached out to Gabrielle because as most of you listening to this will know, and you're about to find out if you don't already know, she's a total knowledge, like, fountain and is working at the pioneering like forefront in the nutrition world on many things and especially gut health but gabrielle in your own words how would you sort of um title yourself now into the position that most people see you at in the industry and what has the journey been to get to that point um well i think you used the term wizardess yes i did <laughs> <laughs> like that's one of the best titles because I really have a lot of hangups about people saying like gut health expert, just because it's sort of um, a misapplied title that I think a lot of people like attach to themselves because, you know, they might be passionate about the area and they might read a lot, but they don't necessarily have the foundational knowledge in the background to be able to evaluate what they're reading. And okay. then they come up with like, you know, protocols or whatever else or supplements that they're selling. And now this person's just a gut health expert because they talk about it a lot. So that's what's kind of like, I don't really know if I want to use the, that term. Um, and then when people ask me what I do for work and I, you know, and I say something like, well, I'm a nutrition coach and consultant, that really is, is sort of um, diluting what, what I'm doing. I mean, I, it's not really just about nutrition. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to come up with a way to reframe that and say, you know, I, I help people um, with their relationships with food. And okay. I work with people who are trying to uh, get to the bottom of digestive discomfort. Because I want, I'm going to be careful about, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm going to heal their gut or I'm going to detox their gut or renew or anything like that. You know, we are we be very careful about the terms that we're using and how we're applying those and what meanings we're sort of creating around them. So um, I think at the, at the heart of everything, I'm very passionate about empowering people. And, and that requires providing them with knowledge, certainly as part of it, but also to enhance, uh, enhancing their self-efficacy, so their confidence that they can do a thing and enhancing their independence so they can do that thing on their own and to always be practicing in an evidence-based manner and so i guess i would say that i am um you know an educator uh would be part of it uh so where the, the way that i got here uh i started out actually um as a as a music major in undergrad and i switched to exercise science because i was so passionate about science no really way wow yeah, yeah. So I was just like, did you play an uh, instrument was like i sang i sang oh yes yeah. Wow. Amazing. So, um, yeah, so that was my first semester. And I was like, hmm, I'm not really super passionate about the rest of this stuff. Uh, okay. but I, like, I, I was like, I really love my biology courses and I really like exercise. Is there like a way that I can combine exercise and science? 
and, and singing. <laughs> That's what I just do in the shower now. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, lo and behold, they had, you know, exercise science as a major. And that's when I really realized that I was so passionate about educating. I was tutoring my classmates in anatomy and physiology for like hours every week, just because it was so fun to like help people um, navigate the information and, and to like see those light bulb moments. And so that's when I decided that I wanted to be a professor. And so um, I, I knew that I would need to go on to get my PhD. So okay. it was about my, jun my junior year of undergrad. I finished that. I, I did an internship um, in a skeletal muscle phys and biochem lab. And that was difficult because most people came out and did internships in, you know, like in a gym setting. And I had to get a special letter from my advisor to say, this is still applicable to <laughs> So um, yes. from, uh, yeah, I was like, it's, it's different, same thing, I swear. Like, muscle is <laughs> so um, I uh, ended up, I, after my internship and working as a research assistant for a semester, I applied for uh, the doctoral program, uh, and this is at Virginia Tech, and um, stayed on in that lab that I was doing my internship in and did my, my doctoral research. And my initial project was actually looking at the effects of high fat feeding on uh, skeletal muscle hypertrophy. And there was a theory that you know, high, chronic high fat feeding was blunting the, the mTOR signaling that would drive uh, hypertrophy or muscle okay. growth. So I had that project going on. It went off without a hitch. I mean, it was really just beautifully designed and implemented. At the tail end of that project, I was provided with the opportunity to do another project sort of on the side. And this project was looking at the potential protective role of probiotic supplementation. Right. And the reason that I got this project was not an accident. It was because I was harassing my PI all the time, saying, well, why aren't we looking in, in the gut? Because we're, we're dosing these mice with lipopolysaccharide or LPS. It's an endotoxin that comes from, from gut bacteria. Right. I was like, rejecting these mice with this. We see that it has an inflammatory effect. Like, why aren't we getting to the bottom of it? If this is something that happens to humans, shouldn't we be figuring that out? And he's yes. like, we don't work with like GI tract. That's not oh. our area. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> then one day he's like, hey, so there's this grant available to do some probiotics research. It seems to be a thing that you like really want to do. So take this project and run with it. I was like, oh, great. Okay. So I had that project going sort of on the side. Data uh, or um, you know, tissue collection wraps up in that first project and we're ready to start the analysis. And I go in one day and like the, the skeletal muscle samples from that project had been improperly stored and ruined. It, we had no tissue that we could do anything with. And so I had this like, <laughs> yes, I had a full on like panic attack breakdown <laughs> in my lab. And then my what did dad you take? Well, I, I cried a little bit and like yelled. <laughs> but then, <laughs> so my PI was like, well, you know, we have this, you have your other project um, and that's been underway. We can basically add more cohorts of mice to that, you know, potentially do a human arm. Um, so I was like, okay, I guess like this is my life now. I have to go in and, and gavage feed mice. Like you basically take a little like blunt and needle type of thing and then put it down their throats. I was gavage feeding 40 mice every day for like years. What? Um, yes. yes. <laughs> what? Wow. Okay. Yes, that's how you give them the right probiotics dose. Right. 
So, um, so yeah, so that was, uh, it wasn't really like the project that I had envisioned for myself. Um, but it was really fascinating because at that point, you know, I finished that in 2014 and that's really when the gut microbiome started to become a little bit more of a hot topic Like the human um, microbiome project was still going on. And, uh, so there were uh, so much information was emerging, you know, about the connection between, uh, the gut microbiome and really all of human physiology. So that was like, okay, that's super interesting. Um, and then I finished my, my degree, it was like five years later, I was looking for positions and I really wanted to get a teaching heavy position. And so I was offered one okay. um, down in Georgia and I took it. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I got that offer before I even had defended. So um, I was ready. So I, I went on to teach in exercise science and I taught uh, primarily sport nutrition and anatomy and physiology and um, was really invested in uh, uh, the, the advising process. So like during grad school, I had done a fellowship also in, in the scholarship of teaching and learning because I was so interested in helping people learn and like enhancing motivation. I wanted to be really the best professor that I could and the best educator okay. that I could. And so, um, I didn't really do intend to do anything with, with, to do with the gut microbiome. I was like, okay, my PhD is done. Great. Now I can go on to do what I want to do with the professor. So, um, so I did that for four years, and in my fourth year, uh, Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization. The uh, hero, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, the, the Dr. Mike, uh, there are the doctors. Um, so, so the Dr. Mike of RP saw me um, uh, collegially debating one in the um, ISSN Facebook page, so the International Society of Sport and Nutrition, so I, I have a certification through them. And uh, he liked what I was saying. And I had a tiny blog at the time. And I guess he checked that out and he liked the content that I was producing. What were you debating? What, what were you debating at the time? Gosh, I, it's hard to even remember because this was so long ago now. It was several years. Okay. Um, I want to say it might have been something with like carbohydrate metabolism. I, I, okay. It had to do something with, with like substrate utilization at different intensities of exercises. Right. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah. So... Uh, he he messaged me on on Facebook Messenger, and <laughs> I was like, "What is this?" And then I realized who it was and who he was associated with, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" So, talked with him and Nick, and they ended up recruiting me. Um, that would have been in 2017. So I that so that was my my third year of teaching. So I'm I'm in my fourth year of teaching, uh, and I had an unusually high sort of administrative load, and um, was was just super busy, you know, like being kind of a new faculty member, but I had some leadership positions and then I'm trying to, you know, do a great job of coaching as well. And I had a couple um, seminars that I did, um, one independently and then one like as an RP coach. And the engagement was really incredible. I mean, to have, you know, 60 people show up to like watch you talk awesome. on, on purpose, you know, it's not, it's different from when it's like kind of students. Um, but it was just that, that they were so invested in garnering that that knowledge. You know, it's not I, that made it sound like people are watching me. No, I don't care about that. I want them to be interested in the the content. You know, because that's why I got into teaching because I was so passionate about this this content and how to apply it. And I found it so fascinating, and I, I really wanted to share that with other people. So to have it, you know, shared in that in that. Um, 
arena was just so incredible and so fulfilling. And I, I wasn't seeing that same sort of connection in academia. And right, so okay. I, I, you know, I was a little bit becoming a little bit disillusioned at that point in time. And um, when, so in my fourth year, I was um, considering, you know, the, the direction I wanted to take because in my fifth year, I was supposed to go up for promotion. And that sort of like marries you, you know, to that position. Right. And um, so I made the difficult decision of actually resigning. After wow. my yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going to give up the, the salary and the benefits and sort of the stability of an academic career, which is fairly well um, uh, guaranteed. Uh, you, you, you sign, you know, you have contracts and things like that, or, or you have tenure and you sort of just, you're there. Right. Um, and, and went to be, you know, just entrepreneurial, I guess, if I can use that term, but just self-employed. You know, I was like, okay, awesome. I'm gonna, you transition to be with RP 100%. And then, um, about six months after that, I started my own business as well. So um, I, I, so so from there, I mean, it's been a, a dream. I get to travel around the world and meet amazing people and engage with people, you know, face to face, via telehealth, email, Instagram. That that other people have this insatiable as well, and so that's Wicked. been really incredible yeah so um so yeah that's how that's how i got to be where i am today i mike um recommended i go on steve hall's podcast or a five stronger podcast um in june of 2018 he was like we really need an evidence-based voice yeah talking about you know the gut microbiome and gut health like, no one else was really doing that and like did you get your doctorate in this and i was like yeah i never really thought i was going to do this. <laughs> And um, yeah, so a few years later, uh, here I am talking about it, and uh, it's been really incredible that people have been so receptive, uh, awesome. for the most part, for you know, to be saying like, "Hey, it's actually." I, I know you think this, but it's actually that. <laughs> oh, that's so cool! And what a lovely, like, what a lovely journey into it, and not even knowing. The bit I love the most about that is that it was almost like this Game of Thrones esque. You were recruited, like Doctor Mike saw you like fighting in the battleground, and then you were recruited into this world of. He's like, we need you on the front line, <laughs> and here you are. Be the evidence-based voice of reason in this in this uh, industry. Yeah. Like, oh, thank you, you yeah. <laughs> from all of us. So when um, so right, we've talked about gut health already a few times, but we probably haven't defined it. And I've heard you do this a couple yeah. of times, but I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question: When we're yeah. talking about gut health, what are we talking about? <laughs> and my million-dollar answer is like, oh, I wish we knew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'll give some definitions just so people have kind of an understanding of um, some of the context there. So when we say um, the gut microbiome, so the gut that refers to your gastrointestinal tract, and um, for the most part, when we're talking about the gut microbiome, we're usually kind of starting in, uh, even though we, we can talk about there's an oral microbiome, you have one in your stomach as well we're usually talking about the small intestine through the large intestine. Most of the time, that's what we're referring to when okay. we're talking about microbiome. And microbiome refers to all of the microorganisms, that's bacteria, archaea, fungi, um, and, and um, there are viruses in there as well, viruses that may infect humans or bacteria, and those are called bacteriophages. 
So it's all of these microbes and their genetic material as well. So that's microbiome, whereas microbiota refers to just the microorganisms. Now, it's primarily made of bacteria. About 99% of the the organisms there are, are bacterial. And the majority of it is found in your colon, so your distal part of your large intestine. And that's where we see the greatest numbers in terms of the the abundance, the number of organisms there, the the variability of species, and also the functional variability. So we have all of the the, um, bacteria and all the microbes who's there, and then we have their genes. What are they actually able to do? And then what are they So that's to, to give an idea of that the gut microbiome. So when we talk about gut health, that gets a little bit cloudy because, okay, we have an idea we're talking about the gastrointestinal tract, but when we say something like health, well, now are we talking about the presence or absence of disease of the gastrointestinal tract, meaning your human tissues, or are we talking about the microbiome? Because okay. those are two separate entities. They do interact with one another. But I think quite often when people are talking about gut health, they're sort of using that as an umbrella term to refer to the whole thing. And the problem there is that while we may, we can certainly diagnose the, the, uh, the presence of a disease or of a functional disorder, yes, we can absolutely do that and say, okay, this person has a disease or a disorder of the gastrointestinal what we really can't do is look at the microbiome and say, this is a healthy or, or an unhealthy microbiome. Because even the term dysbiosis, that's one that might, people may have heard, that refers to an alteration of the microbiome, of who's there and what they're doing, okay. compared to a healthy control. Not necessarily... That, it's, that it is a disease state compared to a healthy state. It's just people who are in the disease condition, perhaps, may look a little bit different from people who, are, who don't have that disease. Okay. So dysbiosis has even become sort of a, a cloudy term that people kind of use to mean disease or, or bad. It's not necessary. It's just altered compared to the so it's, I think, important to have those definitions in mind. And that's why we can't really clearly define what gut health is. Um, because aside from that, even in addition to that, we also have sort of gastrointestinal distress symptoms. Right, okay. You know, that, that there is a the presence of a disease. You have some gas and bloating and whatnot. That can just be normal as a result of those microbes. Um, metabolizing nutrients. So it's like we have these three separate sections. We have the, the anatomy and physiology of the gastrointestinal tract, we have the microbiome, and then we have uh, sort of the manifestations of like what could be going on in there, sort of what we're experiencing. And we can't conflate all of those. They're three separate things that just happen to be associated. That was an amazing explanation. <laughs> Thank you. Um, That was such a good explanation. Thank you so much. But what it does sort of suggest is that must be a really hard thing as a practitioner or as an individual to monitor what we might refer to as gut health or the health of the microbiome and those three facets. Yeah. How do we navigate that? Yeah. And I think this is where it's, you know, kind of the art of coaching comes into play when you're working with a person who comes to you with questions about gut health. 
um, that you need to validate their experience, that they are having some, some discomfort or they have been told something or read something. And so they're coming to you with their reality and their experience, and that is valid. And you have to be very careful about validating that and recognizing that um, as you know, their, their uh, perspective and like the lens through which they're viewing things. And then carefully with permission providing other information and an alternative perspective so that you okay. can, you know, to, to empower them with, with factual information as, as far as we know it, you know, and in some cases it might be well, just that, Hey, we don't actually know that, you know, I Brilliant. don't have a, an alternative piece of information to provide <laughs> to tell you that we don't know that yet. Um, so in terms of, you know, coaching, uh, just being careful about how we navigate those, those initial conversations, to make sure that we are cultivating um, a relationship that that can foster, you know, growth and and pursuit of different avenues that might have been different from what the person first intended on doing. And then, you know, the other thing that I mentioned about being careful about is just the claims that we're making. So when I'm working with a person who has some GI distress, and in most cases, it's going to be, you know, something. It's it's going to be food related quite often, but you know making sure that they've gone to their, their GP, their gastroenterologist, that any um, red flags are addressed, you know, in terms of their symptoms, we can cross that off, make sure that they have, you know, an otherwise clean bill of health. And then if they have something, you know, that um, uh, for which like a dietary intervention would be effective, then we can look at, okay, what are the evidence-based dietary interventions? The low FODMAP diet is one that I use pretty frequently. Um, that I help guide people through because it can be a little bit difficult to navigate. Okay. Um, Monash University is a good resource for that. So I decided, you know, I, I pursued that certification because that looks like really one of the most evidence-based uh, interventions. And that to me was like, okay, it helps about 70% of folks who have GI distress um, in most cases, you know, associated with IBS, but not necessarily because FODMAPs are just universally not handled well by the gastrointestinal. Right. <laughs> so I was like, this is something that you know can really help a lot of folks. So making sure that we're using evidence-based interventions as well, and then avoiding making claims about making significant changes to the gut microbiome itself, because we really don't have the evidence to say that you can. Um, renew the gut microbiome or reset it. A gut reset is another one that I find okay. really frustrating. It's just <laughs> a myth. Um, and that while we do have evidence that certain dietary patterns seem to reproducibly affect specific groups of bacteria, we really still have to be very careful about saying like, oh, I'm going to you know do X, Y, and Z to your gut microbiome. I personally just don't think that that is a claim that is worthwhile either. You know, I, yes, very likely that it will change. It will respond to changes in dietary intake, but that's going to happen. Um, you know, whether, whether or not you have a measured intervention to your diet, if you just have, right. you know, some changes, it's an, it, they, they are living organisms, it's an ecosystem, and it adapts to changes in nutrient availability. And that's really outside of your control. You're not able to pinpoint which bacteria are going to grow and thrive and which are going to be starved out. Although people who say, you know, that you can starve out the bad bacteria, you know, well then, okay, well, what's a good bacteria and what's a bad bacteria? Right. That's the other area that we have a lot of... <laughs> 
attention over um, because that is really contextual as well. And and you, I've, I've heard you say before as well that there might be like what you would label as bad bacteria in the gut, but not having an effect or function within the gut. Exactly. Yeah, because we can't determine the function with by just looking at who's there, and that quite often the bacteria that are potentially pathogenic, so that could potentially cause a disease, are uh, relatively controlled. So that's why when we're talking about, you know, what's a, a like looking at um, a quote unquote health gut uh, or a gut that is, you know, not associated with the disease state or, or what have you, we're looking at sort of the relative abundances of neutral, uh, species and beneficial species versus those that could potentially cause a disease. If you okay. that balance, then there is a chance that those potentially pathogenic microbes could grow, could, could um, multiply the numbers that would then allow them to express their virulence so they could then cause disease. So just right, the okay. presence there, you know, the presence of them, like if you were to do a, a gut an analysis of some sort and someone said, oh, you've got some staphylococcus and, you know, okay, that's normal, actually. Not all of the um, strains are going to be pathogenic either. And even if you have some pathogenic strains in there, they won't necessarily be causing any disease. They're just existing and they're kind of looking around saying, well, there's not a lot of us here. <laughs> you know, hang out and like, wait until we have enough numbers to overcome. Okay. So, so that's the other thing is that, um, you know, we have to be careful about what we're labeling as good or bad. It's really just like, okay, potentially pathogenic, um, probably beneficial and just neutral. And then there are plenty that we just haven't identified yet. Like we just don't know what others are doing and they're all interacting with one another and sort of keeping each other, um, you know, sort of well behaving. So, so, you know, they're, they're out competing one another for, for real estate and for nutrients. And so just like when we're looking at, you know, potentially um, um, harmful species on the planet, uh, we're not saying like, oh, we have to eradicate all of the mosquitoes. We wouldn't be able to do that anyway. But even if we did, it would have uh, serious repercussions on the rest of the ecosystem. So, you know, even to say, we're just going to starve out the bad bacteria, A, we don't really have a great definition for, for what the bad bacteria are. B, we have no way to preferentially starve them out. Because guess what? If, if you're thinking it's like removing refined carbohydrates, you as the host are taking up most of the refined carbohydrates. And anything else that's left over, all the bacteria would like to use those. Like, okay. oh, easy food. <laughs> How then, if we experience things like bloating, or if as a coach you're hearing clients report back things like bloating or distress... Yeah. Does the intervention ever require a monitoring, um, a monitoring means or a measurement beyond that of just basing them, basing the fit? Oh my goodness! <laughs> beyond that of the feedback of the client. Did that make sense? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Like yeah. So our so what do we track in terms of you know what are we what sort of outcomes can we look at? Thank you so and, much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do we look at changes in the microbiome? <laughs> in most cases, I, I think there's a lot of people want to know this. They're like, okay, can I look at like, can I analyze? Right. Yeah. Meaningful data. So, um, so to answer that, there are a few different ways that we can identify um, what microbes might be present, and unfortunately, the ones that we use sort of, um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say 
the things that you would buy, like that, that marketers would sell you to say like, hey, you can analyze your gut with this uh, and see who's there. Well, they're using DNA-based analysis in many cases. Not Maybe not all companies do this, but from, from some that I've seen, they're using DNA-based analysis. You're getting um, all live and dead bacteria. And it's also, it's a fecal sample. So that's one that it, the fecal sample will be representative of the microbes in your distal uh, colon, but okay. it's not going to be a one-to-one map. So right. you already have a little, you're losing some of the detail there. You're losing some of the resolution there. Then if you're looking at DNA-based analysis, you're seeing live and dead. So you don't actually get a good amount. You don't actually get a good representation of who could potentially be active there or not because a dead microbe is not really going to be doing very much. You're also not going to get any of the functional data. So, you know, what are they actually doing? You can get genetic material. What can they do? But that's like having a book of, of recipes and then just assuming that you're going to cook all the recipes. Right. <laughs> you know, to that book of recipes doesn't mean you're actually making all those foods. Now, if you use something like a 16S, you're going to be preferentially just looking at bacteria. So you're going to miss out on other microbes that don't have that gene. And depending on the region of the gene that you're looking at, that's going to modify the accuracy of your uh, measurement as well. And again, you're not getting functional data. If you want to get functional data, you're going to have to put out a lot of money. So <laughs> that's what we do in research. And like, you're, you're doing like metagenomic shotgun sequencing and like, right, okay. all, you know, all of the genetic material there, who's there, what are they doing? You know, what are their relative numbers? Um, and you just don't get that data in, you know, these like, at home microbiome kits. Now you could, if you um, wanted to get some cool data and contribute to, um, some some like crowdsource science. There is the American Gut Project, so they do accept um, uh, fecal samples from people, and they send out questionnaires and things like that. And oh, from that, cool. we can get some pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So you can get some like cool correlational data to see, you know, what are you know, the people who have like super diverse microbiomes? What are they doing? Or you know, are there correlations between certain groups of bacteria and certain um, lifestyle factors. So we can see a lot of interesting correlations, uh, but as, as Rob Knight, who heads the, the AGP and headed the Human Microbiome Project, I actually got to meet him and he said, people are so hungry for solutions that don't exist yet. You know, like they want to know that there's something they can, I want to know that I can yeah. modify my, my microbiome and it's just really not the case. So how then do we determine like what we're doing is making any difference at all? Well, we can start with, you know, looking at the trends that we see in the research. It looks like there are some best practices, for example, eating a wide variety of dietary fibers. Okay. We haven't gotten to the point yet where we can say like, oh, this fiber is used by this bacteria, you know, <laughs> we're not there yet. But we can say that uh, because fibers and because resistant starches are not digestible by us as the human host, they will pass through the small intestine where most of the absorption takes place and get to the large intestine and they'll serve as substrates or, or um, uh, nutrients for the microbes there. So that's important that we need to make sure that we're ingesting microbe accessible carbohydrates. They can use um, proteins, amino acids to, to assert to some extent, but not many of those are reaching the colon. So if we okay. really want to ensure that we're giving them plenty of energy to use, we need to be sending them microbe accessible carbohydrates. So that's one that looks to be a best practice. Awesome. Another best practice is to engage in physical activity. 
because it looks like individuals who are physically active tend to have a higher abundance of bacteria that produce beneficial short-chain fatty acids like butyrate and also just more diversity. So we usually consider that um, diversity, there might be sort of a U-shaped curve, so too little diversity might not be great and too much diversity might not be great. But generally speaking, when we're looking at individuals who have um, a, a gastrointestinal disease or individuals who uh, engage in, in uh, lifestyle behaviors and have lifestyle factors that are associated with disease, they also tend to have reduced diversity and reduced, importantly, functional diversity. So that's another thing okay. that we have to think about. Yeah. So, so kind of, it's very, it's, it's basic stuff, but yeah, ensuring that you're getting a, a, a adequate fiber from a variety of plant sources. You can also be omnivorous if you want to. There's no great benefit. There's, there's no benefits thus far to having a vegan or vegetarian diet versus on, an omnivorous diet from a gut microbiome standpoint. Um, and then engaging in physical activity. So those two seem to be really big. Now, if you have a person who's experiencing some GI um, issues, bloating, gas, loose stools, constipation, they've gone to their gastroenterologist and the anatomy and physiology of, or at least the anatomy of their GI tract is normal. Maybe they have some IBS, so the physiology might be uh, a little bit altered, but they're safe to go through some dietary interventions. Okay. Then you can looking at some of the foods that are most likely going to cause those, those issues, which would be um, the FODMAPs. Uh, so those are fermentable carbohydrate. They may also want to go to an allergist just to be screened for potential allergies. So it's not necessarily going to be diagnostic, but just to give an idea of, hey, you know, you, these are potential allergens. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to look at some of the common you know, dietary allergens as well and sort of go through a systematic elimination phase and then a reintroduction so you can test which foods they may tolerate at specific amount or, or not tolerate. Okay. So you can do that really simply by looking at the Bristol stool scale to measure stool quality. So we have a scale of one through seven, one being extreme constipation, hard rabbit-like pellets, and then seven would be completely liquid. We usually want to aim for a bowel movement that's about a three to a four, so pretty solid, well-formed. They feel like I had that bowel movement and I'm done. Um, and then looking at, you know, just incidences of gas and bloating. So, do you know, if you could give a Likert scale to bloating and to, to you know, um, sensations of gas production as well. Um, and then, you know, things like, um, it, you know, are they feeling, you know, um, yeah, like acid reflux and things. So, so you can look at that and look at those outcomes okay. and see how those might be improving without necessarily even having to make any claims about doing any anything to the microbiome. It, it probably is changing, but it's sort of silly to say that, oh, I did that, you know, or, or like, we yeah, model right. better now, you know, it's just, you know, realizing that the what you're what you're experiencing in terms of gas and bloating that's a result of bacteria fermenting uh carbohydrates and it results in gas formation and if we can modify the amount and types of those carbohydrates that you're taking in we can obviously reduce potentially the amount of gas and bloating that you're experiencing and especially in individuals with irritable bowel syndrome quite often these symptoms kind of can can be um associated with one another. So if we have a lot of gas production and it causes stretching of the uh, intestinal wall, 
and they have some some um, hypersensitivity, some visceral hypersensitivity, that can cause them to experience pain, even though it may be sort of a normal amount of gas for right. a person without IBS because of the hypersensitivity. So it can sort of exacerbate other potential symptoms. So sometimes if you sort of control one thing, it tends to help benefit uh, another thing as well. So those are that's really what I try to focus on. You know, how are you feeling? And, and really part of that too is, you know, just reducing food anxiety as well. Because when people are experiencing a lot of um, discomfort around mealtimes and then they're reading things that might be sort of alarmist and they're really worried about their gut health, now they're starting to feel a lot of anxiety and anxiety can cause GI distress. So, you know, trying to break that cycle by, you know, empowering them with education, um, using evidence-based interventions to help them feel better physically, and then you get that forward momentum to where they start just feeling better overall. And does, and it, so is there a point at which like someone experiencing bloating, it's actually just natural. And some of these foods are good for our, for our gut bacteria. And is the absence of, of any of that sensation, so someone being like, well, I've never had any problems. Like my stool is pretty regular like, and I don't ever get bloated. Is that indicative of, well, you're obviously healthy on the inside. Well, you know, not necessarily. It's a, so, and I think people also should, uh, well, so let me start at the beginning. So are gas and bloating uh, normal? Yes. Although it, there's a, a spectrum to that, you know, okay. so to be sometimes a little bit bloated, to pass gas, we actually pass quite a lot of gas throughout the day. Um, <laughs> How do you know? Nobody <laughs> does that, right? Um, yeah, so we're producing quite a lot of gas and we pass gas, uh, you know, probably like, I used to know the number, I can't think of it off the top of my head. It's quite a lot, like dozens of times a day that you're passing gas, either that you can perceive it or maybe not necessarily sometimes. Um, and so that is normal. But of course, you know, if someone is experiencing extreme distension and discomfort and it's chronic, then that might be not necessarily, um, you know, I don't want to label that as abnormal, but certainly not ideal. It can affect quality of life. Not necessarily to say that there's anything, you know, uh, diseased going on with the yeah. microbiome. It's just that you have a large number of microorganisms in there that are producing a variety of gases. And sometimes those gases can... Um, be consumed by other microorganisms that will then uh, sort of uh, propagate further gas production. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, so the byproducts are being used by other microorganisms that are like, hey, that's great. I want you to make more of that. Um, so that's, you know, again, <laughs> the idea that they're okay. all interacting with each other. Yes. So, um, so yeah, so those are, you know, that's a normal occurrence. Now, if you never feel bloated and your bowel movements are always like a three or a four, that's awesome. You're still passing gas. Yeah. <laughs> it is a manageable amount and there is nothing going on with your GI tract. So you're having, um, you know, experiencing any perceptions of pain or anything like that, but you still are, are, are housed by uh, tens of trillions of bacteria and they're still active. It just so happens that, you know, the interactions between your diet and those bacteria and your gastrointestinal tract are leading you to feel pretty comfortable most of the time. Right, okay. So that's not a bad thing. Oh, brilliant. Now, when you, and I'm sure you've come across this, so people, and this seems to be like the, um, the diet that is, the, I don't even know how it's come about that people can think that this is the way forward. You probably know what I'm about to say. I know, so, you get, <laughs> so you get people that go on like the carnivore diet. 
and they totally eliminate like i'm pretty sure it's consistent across all sort of positions that vegetables are good for you but they'll report these like feelings of well i feel so much better how do you respond when you're faced with people who have noticed short-term improvements from reducing things like that um yeah. and is there a place for maybe like short term for that sort of a strategy mm -hmm. yeah so what they're basically doing is an elimination diet without the subsequent testing and reintroduction. So right. by chance, and you know what? It's so funny. So, so this could happen. I've talked about IgG food sensitivity tests before. They're not valid. They are literally just testing your body. It's, an, it's a recognition antibody. Okay. It's just an indication that you have eaten that food at some point. That's all it is. Okay? It's not a valid test. It's not a diagnostic test. It is an absolute marketing ploy. But... A person could. Gabriella said it. She said it. <laughs> um, but if you eliminate those foods, you could, by chance, eliminate, and you will most likely eliminate foods that could cause some GI distress because perhaps you have a uh, a, a non-IgE uh, food allergy. Okay. So you wouldn't get hives and things from that, but you would get severe diarrhea. So that's a possibility that you've eliminated a potential food allergy that's immune mediated, or you've eliminated a food to which you are intolerant. Not sensitive. These are not sensitivity. <laughs> also kind of a made up word slash umbrella term, but an intolerance would be an enzyme mediated inability to uh, digest a food product. Okay. So if you have lactose intolerance, you don't create the lactase enzymes. So you can't down the lactose sugar and instead the bacteria from so that's one example. Okay. Now with these, the FODMAP um, carbohydrates, we are sort of universally, as we just don't have the digestive enzymes to break down uh, dietary fibers. Okay. That's what makes them fibers. And so we are universally in, intolerant to those and to, if you want to in that way. And so when we remove those food products, now we're removing the substrate that could be used for fermentation and gas production. Right. So now we feel better because we have removed the foods that could be fermented and cause gas. So now we're having less gas, we're having less bloating. We may also have removed food products that can, that are foods that contain um, compounds that are osmotically active, meaning they pull water into the lumen of the gut. Okay. And so that, if we are eating a lot of those, that can cause very loose stools and diarrhea. So if we eliminate those, now we have much more firm bowel movements. Of course, we're feeling so much better. And it's important to validate that experience, not to cool. say like what you're doing isn't working. Clearly, what they're doing is working to help them feel better. But it's not necessarily sustainable long term. And it might not be working through the mechanisms that they think it's working. Okay. You know, people are thinking that like the carnivore diet is used to like heal your gut or reset your gut. Really, all you're doing is removing most of the nutrients that most of those microbes can use for energy. So they're not doing so much fermentation. Instead, they might actually be breaking down the protective mucus layer of your large intestine. So that's one that we've seen in uh, rodent models wow. where they feed them a, yeah, a, fiber, uh, a completely fiber deficient diet. The microbes will use the carbohydrates that are found in that mucus layer uh, as, as an energy source. And of course, as I mentioned, they could be using proteins as well. So they can use dietary protein um, for energy. But generally speaking, when we compare uh, the the uh, microbial profiles, uh, looking at like just diversity as one index, 
of individuals who are eating a very low fiber diet versus those who are eating higher fiber diets, that we tend to see reduced diversity. And okay. we don't know, we don't have a good threshold for like what level of diversity is problematic. But generally okay. speaking, as I said, you know, the closer we get to really, really, really low diversity, the greater chance we have for some of those potential pathogenic strains to uh, thrive. Now, the other problem is that, uh-huh. No, no, sorry. Oh, I was gonna say, I didn't want to yeah, so the other problem is that we just don't have, we're not producing some of those beneficial short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which which really appears to have a number of positive uh, metabolic effects, like helping to maintain insulin sensitivity for one. So we're really losing out on the benefits of fiber, and you know certainly there are also potential protective benefits in, in terms of cardiovascular disease um, and reducing uh, cholesterol reabsorption, and even that can have an effect on on um, some of the of the problematic products that some of the bacteria can make from from bile. Um, metabolism so you're just missing out on all of those benefits okay if you're using the carnivore diet now, yes you're having the benefit of feeling better but you could feel better and also the other side meat the gabriel i think your audio is just sort of slowed it's just gone a little bit quieter i'm not sure if it's the oh can you still hear me just yeah it's a little bit quieter oh here hmm. well i did probably have my thumb over the microphone. Okay. <laughs> we, I, I can still just hear you. It's gone a lot. Maybe it's not the microphone in your headphones, maybe going down. I'm not sure. I don't know. Is it any better now? I just turned my volume up a little bit. That's cool. Yeah, I can hear that a bit better. Right. Um, so what if, so, and how far is too far? Is there a too far? So if we've reduced this diversity because we've gone on a carnivore diet, we haven't been given our, our gut uh, bacteria the foods it needs. Is there a point where you're like, hey, dude, like this is you now? <laughs> or, it's, or can we begin to repopulate that? Hmm. That's a good question. And so far, um, it looks like the microbiome is fairly resilient and that it bounces back. Even if you're in the midst of an intervention sometimes, you'll see changes initially, and then the microbiome will sort of revert back to its initial state. So overall, looks like even if we have some pretty significant patients, about 60 to 80% of them just kind of hang out with you from wow. until you're like in your 60s, and then you start to lose diversity with old age. Um, that, that's on our side, like that, that like, okay, we have that in our corner that it is, okay. you know, fairly over time. And that's, we do need more studies. I mean, that's the other thing with the carnivore diet, long-term studies in humans to, to refute or support any of the claims that are being made. All we have right now, we're just sort of making, um, uh, you know, some, some or, or drawing concerns based on, on the data so far. Um, that being said, I some pretty interesting things looking at um, challenges to the microbiome and how that affects its um, reestablishment afterwards. So if, uh, if a person, so there was an interesting study looking at people eating MREs. So these are like military patients. So eating MREs for a really long period of time, they're fairly fiber, fairly high fat, they're meant to be energy dense. And in individuals who are eating those for weeks, and then they were fed a normal diet, this high resistant starch, they had uh, th those folks compared to the control folks, 
had a different response from the bacteria. It looked like some of them kind of struggled to reemerge, okay. um, given plenty of substrate. So it looks like there is some evidence in, in terms of that study and then also looking at uh, probiotic supplementation after taking antibiotics. That the other even supplementing with probiotics after taking antibiotics delayed the establishment of the, the pre Okay. So it could be, you know, that that some of these perturbations, you know, perhaps as a whole, the other thing is, you know, when we're looking at that profile of the microbiome, we're losing resolution. No matter how we do it, there's no perfect way to say that everything is there and really so what we have right now, um, now got to say, oh, it looks like some of these might so we go yeah your um your internet connection's a little bit a little bit oh. jittery at the moment okay where did i break up you're that's more consistent that's more consistent i think okay. um so should i repeat the previous thing is that okay like maybe like the last 30 seconds yeah absolutely so just basically talking about like the mres cool yeah wicked thank you so when we look at some of the examples of a of a of a perturbation to the microbiome and then watching it um, be reestablished, there are some instances in which it, it seems like it's impaired. So in individuals who are eating MRE, so military rations, which are pretty low in fiber and high in fat, uh, versus those who are eating just a control diet, um, when we feed their microbiome-resistant starch which is a really excellent source of nutrition for those bacteria. Eating with MREs didn't see quite as much of a response. So there okay. are some bacteria that seem a little bit impaired after that, that they aren't really able to rebound. And it could be that they're being outcompeted by other bacteria that are a little bit more resilient. So some of them are quite adaptive and can say like, hey, I don't mind if you're eating a lot of fiber or not. I can use a bunch of different things. Whereas others like bifidobacteria are a bit finicky and they're like, if you're not getting enough diet, <laughs> so that's one example. And we also have examples looking at probiotic supplementation after taking antibiotics. Right, okay. And that may actually delay reestablishment of the previous microbiome because again, we're adding more competition to that ecosystem. Wow. So, Yes. Yeah. So it is. No way. You can think of it like adding a new organism to an environment. You know, we have invasive species like squirrels or kudzu that when you add that to the environment, it outcompetes other organisms that may have been there much longer, but they're just not as adaptive as these new organisms. So that's another thing that we have to keep in mind that, you know, the, the effects of probiotics could be nothing or it could be quite significant, and that the ability of your microbiome to sort of rebound after a perturbation is really a, a, a sort of an area. I mean, looking at it, it's very easy to determine, you know, what is happening, and then also, is this really due to this, this perturbation, or, or do we have sort of fluctuation? Because we have basic fluctuation, even in just the span of 20 hours, um, I was looking at some tax are going to higher and fasting for, for, for uh, a longer time. So even just sleeping, just sleeping and fasting. 
That's so interesting. I mean, we, you sort of go, right, I've been on antibiotics. I need to throw all of these probiotics at myself. And that makes so much sense, what you're saying. That is just amazing. That's such a good... So in, in, in that case then, do you think that the general assumption or even advice is incorrect for people to be taking probiotics because we just don't know what cultures, what animals are in that organ, that, that area down there? Right. So there, it looks like some probiotics are well evidence-based for addressing some of the symptoms that can come with taking antibiotics. So if you have diarrhea associated with antibiotic, uh, with an antibiotic, then potentially you could take something like Espoulardi. That seems to be the most effective. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that's, and, and that's a yeast, just so people know. So it's a little bit different from, you know, the bacterial um, strains of, of probiotics, which most, in most cases, we're seeing strains within the um, lactobacilli and, and bifidobacterium genes uh, generally. So when we are looking at how we might want to apply a probiotic, we again can go to the evidence and say, where have these been effective consistently? That's the other problem is sometimes you may have like five positive publications and four negative Okay. One, you know, that really showed benefit and, you know, what population are we looking at? Because some are going to be more effective for pediatrics versus adults. So there's really no one size fits all approach. There's no one like kitchen sink probiotic to take every day. Okay. And that's really actually limited um, in part due to study heterogeneity. So different populations and different amounts. Um, there's really no two studies that have done, you know, exactly the same. Thing. So that's part of the problem. Um, and then also the fact that the fact that there are strain specific differences, we can look at a species and then we have to look at the subspecies or the strains. We can get really, really specific about the species. Because like you were to do just E. coli, well, E. coli nisile is, is a probiotic, but E. coli that makes Shigella toxin, which are a bunch of other strains, um, that will give you diarrhea and make you sick. So <laughs> you really do know on that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> e. coli is a bad guy. Not necessarily. It can be you have good strains, helpful strains, and then you have pathogenic strains. You just have to be careful about the recommendations that we're making, and then also that there are contraindications. Um, that okay. Are, you know, for example, individuals who are taking um, cancer drugs. It looks like probiotic supplementation could actually interact with the cancer drugs. And so those are things that we're still, you know, we're still learning about. And if we want to make the claim that probiotics are effective, which arguably some of them do appear to be, we also have to be cognizant that if something is effective, that means it also comes with notice. They don't do anything ever, fine, it's probably pretty benign. If they are having an effect, that means that they're worse. Do you, do you think that there will ever be a time where we can be like, right, I'm going to walk in, get my sort of gut microbiome biome scanned, whether it's in a healthy state or you've just been on a course of antibiotics and be like, cool, here are the strains you need to get yourself back on par. Can, do you think that will ever happen? I'm not sure because, you know, this, this, this sort of is going in the way of like genetic nutrition where they were like, oh, we can look okay. at it. You know, <laughs> right, yeah. And then, like, this is going to be the diet for you. And there are claims about that. There are claims. There are companies that will do a gut microbiome analysis and tell you these are the foods that you should be eating or not. And we are years, if not decades, away from that. I mean, science is advancing at, at sort of a, an exponential pace. Cool. So perhaps I wouldn't write 
off, you know, um, but the funny thing is like, we're kind of almost there now. It's not complete science fiction to say like, Hey, we have a general understanding of some of the foods that are probably good for you to be eating at a regular, at regular intervals. And they would be plants. (laughs) (laughs) We know that like bifidobacteria, for example, very responsive to dietary fibers. So if you want to like toe the line of an evidence-based recommendation, probably eating dietary fiber will increase the relative abundance of this microbe and probably not eating dietary fiber will decrease the (laughs) It's funny how it comes full circle. I mean, like the, the idea that we, we can be so nuanced and talk about, and it's really exciting to talk about all of these little things. But in practice, it sounds like we sort of come back to this, like, well, yeah, like you still need to have like a balanced diet with vegetables. That's really good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I wish that like that could be more exciting for people. You know, you <laughs> get frustrated, I guess, because it's a little bit invalidating, you know, when someone comes to you with like this woo thing that they read and, you know, they want to do this whole gut reset. And it's like, well, yeah, we don't, we don't actually do that. You know, or even asking someone, like I've asked some practitioners, like, what are you claiming to reset? Like, are you, are you claiming that we're turning all of the microbes <laughs> off? And are you like thinking we're getting rid of all of them? Like in what way does this reset anything? It's a whole ecosystem. We don't, <laughs> and we're like, let's just do a planet reset. <laughs> You know, it doesn't work like that. Trump's got that button somewhere. He's got the, he's got the reset button somewhere. <laughs> if you, on that note of like general advice being generally good, mm-hmm. is there something though where you're like, actually though, like the general advice that most practitioners are sort of disseminating, is there something you'd be like, if I could just put this word of wisdom into all practitioners head and maybe change the way they're talking about that, it would be this or, or maybe not. It would really only be the practitioners that are like dogmatically pushing the carnivore diet or a <laughs> vegan diet. Okay. The carnivore, I'm like, okay, vegan diet is it, either way, you know, if you were doing something that's restrictive, there's going to be intrinsic risk of nutrient deficiency more so than from an omnivorous diet. Okay. But like with a vegan diet, you're having plenty of fiber and phytochemicals. You know, if you're doing that in a prudent way, From a gut health standpoint, um, from that standpoint of looking out for your gut microbes, of your gut microbes, um, probably not as potentially harmful as the carnivore diet. But I really think that like we would not have that dogmatic approach and that we would just look at the breadth and the depth of evidence and from there come up with just more prudent recommendations. Because wow, is it frustrating when you get a person who has an advanced degree and it's like, how did you end up at that conclusion? <laughs> you know, I know you know how to read a research article and yet you're trying to, you know, cherry pick like studies on diverticulitis to be like, fiber doesn't help. Um, that's really frustrating. <laughs> so I would say that's my only, that's my only gripe to just not be dogmatic, to just look at the breadth and the depth of the evidence that we, we can see, you know, based on RCTs and just longitudinal data and observational data, that there are certain dietary patterns that are really beneficial like mediterranean diet cool wanted you know an easy hold on my headphone battery is dying <laughs> i'm gonna mic cool. in just a second can you still hear me okay i can still hear you yeah okay but here's my mic drop moment yeah. so if people oh, wanted to, 
I am not dogmatic about any dietary approach, but if people wanted something that was like, hey, I want to go read and have a list of recommendations and like something of like, you know, a person to just tell me what to do, Mediterranean style diet. Super easy. Like that is one of the ones that, <laughs> that actually looks like, and there are, um, and, and there are articles on, on this um, in association specifically with the gut microbiome as well. Uh, and it's not anything groundbreaking. It just happens to be a really prudent dietary approach. But if you want it to be just like, you know, omnivorous or vegetarian or pescatarian or whatever, just eat plants at every meal. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's the takeaway. And you dropped the bomb. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. What's, um, what, and don't worry about that. Uh, the person you're speaking about talking nonsense who can read the research because that's why we've got you to pick them out. <laughs> Thank you. So when, when, and then this is sort of changing the subject a bit, but when we talk mm. about um, gut permeability, and this is, mm. again, this is one of the things that um, the people on sort of like the borderlines of evidence-based practice might talk about, and that's being generous. Yeah. How synonymous is gut permeability, that phrase we use with uh, things with inflammation and then we're talking so it's like inflammation and skin conditions and breathing and it's affecting your pb and your back squat like yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah and this is a tough area because actually even within the evidence-based community like even within the research community there's some contention over the link between um uh, obesity and intestinal permeability and uh, metabolic endotoxemia so back in, you know, when I was still um, writing my dissertation and whatnot, I remember Patrice Connie was one of the first names that I really committed to memory because this guy coined uh, the term metabolic endotoxemia. And he was really heading the, the research looking at the effects of high fat feeding and intestinal permeability and lipopolysaccharide or LPS, um, we call that endotoxin, uh, reaching circulation and then potentially causing an inflammatory downstream cascade. The problem is that we don't have a really good way of measuring LPS levels. So we don't have a good way of measuring levels of endotoxin in the blood that's kind of consistent from one lab to the next. And so people can kind of define endotoxemia sort of however they want. Okay. So it's like, oh, these people looked like they had high levels of endotoxin. So you see it in like people who've run a, a marathon. You see it in people who have eaten a high fat meal. You see it in individuals with um, obesity, but sometimes you don't. <laughs> so <laughs> it depends on, you know, what you're using to measure and then how, like, where are your classifications? Where are your cutoffs for measuring okay. metabolic endotoxemia? And, and their, their magnitudes of times different from one study to the next. So that's part of it is how are we actually characterizing that metabolic endotoxemia and how are we actually characterizing that, that inflammation? So if you, um, if you inject a human with LPS, you will see an inflammatory cascade. So you'll see uh, cytokines, these are chemical messengers that are released from our tissues that, that activate our immune system. And if, you, uh, and if you do this in mice, after you've fed them like a high fat meal and you take out their skeletal muscle, sometimes you'll find that the skeletal muscle is metabolically inflexible, meaning it doesn't fully oxidize fats very well. So you end up with more intramuscular triglyceride stores and it doesn't respond very well to glucose either. So it has some, a level of insulin resistance. Right. 
So those have been in a number of different formats. Those have all been linked together. And so that's where this idea of, you know, intestinal permeability or quote, 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 unquote, leaky gut and inflammation has, has, has become, um, I think, I don't know, co-opted by so many groups right. because yes, we do it, it. So, and that's where it gets tricky. It has an evidence. It has a basis in evidence. There's research to show that yes, these mechanisms all occur. The problem is that and I actually just kind of had this conversation on Instagram. You know, the person said, well, leaky gut causes inflammation because it's LPS to um, this receptor and then this cytokine. <laughs> and I was like, there are a number of different toll-like receptors and many more inflammatory <laughs> cytokines than just this one. And then there are also anti-inflammatory cytokines that help to blunt that, that initial inflammatory response. So yes, you will have an inflammatory response um, when uh, lipopolysaccharide binds to uh, one, of, one of the in, uh, immune receptors, but you will also have an anti-inflammatory response. And your okay. liver can also detoxify that LPS. And there are um, um, compounds like chylomicrons that we use to transport fats that can bind to the LPS and render it in, uh, probably uh, unable to induce inflammation. So it's much more complex than just, oh, leaky gut leads to more LPS, leads to inflammation. Right. Okay. Now getting to the root of it, looking at, at that intestinal permeability. So intestinal permeability or uh, altered intestinal per permeability is associated with a number of disease states, but we don't know whether it's a cause or consequence of those disease states. Okay. So what we really have right now are just sort of risk factors that if you have this, you may also have altered intestinal permeability, but we really don't know what the clinical outcomes to that would be. Um, we also have a, a, a number of different ways of measuring intestinal permeability, some of which are more direct or more accurate than others. And even if we can you know, accurately measure intestinal permeability, we've identified that this person has uh, a, a, a risk factor for it. Well, what do we actually do about it? Right. Because you know, how do we then, you know, the way that we modify intestinal permeability is by modifying expression of these tight junction proteins between each of those intestinal cells. Well, we could look at some, some dietary interventions that may be beneficial, like uh, enhancing butyrate production via you know, uh, um, uh, suppl uh, supplying those microbes with micro with microbe accessible carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Butyrate does appear to assist in the expression of tight junction proteins. That could be one. But in some cases, it may be that the disease state itself is causing some physical damage to the intestinal cells. And then from there, we really have to look at how do we treat the disease, you know, perhaps through pharmacological measures, and then look at other lifestyle interventions as well. But in most cases, it looks like because some of these um, risk, risky states like um, I, I, um, being at the higher end of BMI, so um, a BMI over 40, um, or in some cases over 35, depending on the study, yeah. um, uh, chronic uh, extreme alcohol use, liver disease, uh, associated with alcohol use, um, type two diabetes. These are things that, that can be, uh, potentially, um, managed or prevented through health seeking behaviors. 
So if we are maintaining relative energy balance, if we're engaging in physical activity, um, you know, there are individuals with obesity who have metabolically healthy obesity. And for them, this might not be a concern, but just knowing that, you know, if we're looking at, you know, what are the ways that we could potentially prevent altered intestinal permeability rather than trying to say like, oh, I have leaky gut and it's causing all these problems. Well, we don't have that relationship established. We don't have a causative relationship established between leaky gut and anything else. We just have, oh, it looks like, you know, these two things tend to happen. Um, but it has not been, um, you know, associated with, um, like gastrointestinal distress. So a lot of people think like, oh, if I have, you know, GI distress, then I have leaky gut. And it's explaining all these other factors as well. Not necessarily. And actually those symptoms don't really appear to be associated with altered intestinal permeability. That is reassuring. That is reassuring. It touches on another question I was going to ask you. Um, Where do you find most of your conversations on this are taking place? And do you feel like there's a responsibility with your knowledge, do you feel like well, now um, you might be like, do you know what? I don't want to talk about gut health anymore, <laughs> but I'm now that person. <laughs> I've got to fight this fight. <laughs> Louis said I've got to fight this fight, so now I've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I think that actually it, it's it's been uh, it's afforded me sort of like a niche area with clients, which has been really wonderful that I, I, for, you know, I, I started out as sort of um, more, on, I think, on the consulting side of things where people wanted to ask me questions about the gut microbiome and gut health and whatnot. And I could provide them with information. And then I found that, you know, I, I can still be I, an educator and I can still empower people. Like, that's what I really wanted to do with that information. And so I transitioned away from from. I still do consulting, but I transition more and more toward coaching. And how okay. can I help people apply this information so that they can go out and be educated consumers? Brilliant. And it start, you know, it often starts with addressing GI distress. But here's the thing. In so so what I see in terms of trends of marketing within gut health, those are representative of trends in the fitness industry overall. And I can see that there are sort of symptoms emerging um, where we are doing a disservice to clients by using this misinformation and the lack of evidence against them to sell things and that they're being sold a message that they are broken in some way that they need to fix their gut health a few years ago no one knew what the gut microbiome was there was no market for you know half the stuff that's out there right now because people were just like oh i feel fine i'm I'm just (laughs) normally you know things are okay or they'd be like i've got some gi distress i'm not sure what that's about and now they have this idea of gut health is something that I have to buy a supplement for, or I have to fix in some way, you know, I have to do something to my gut microbiome. And when people come to me asking for that, I'm very transparent about saying, that's not what I do. Your gut microbiome might change, but you know, that's not a thing that I'm going to be like, yeah, I can sell you that. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that's really, that's really my responsibility and the responsibility of every practitioner to make sure that we are setting up our clients so that they can go on to um, work independently and be empowered with all the knowledge and skills and abilities that they now have. And, you know, there's nothing better to me than when a client comes to me and they're like, I unfollowed this account on Instagram because they were putting out just like 
complete crap. And, you know, I, and, and I know now, like I used to follow it. I know now that it's not true. And I had one client who said, you know, I, I think this person that I used to be following is trying to market people is trying to market to people who don't like themselves. And like, I'm not that person. Like I like myself now, you know, but, but knowing that, that, yeah, that's what they're sort of marketing to. They're marketing to people who feel that they might be at a deficit or at a disadvantage or broken in some way. And like this person will fix you. And we really need to be coming at it from the stance of if you have a problem, we can work on that together, but you are not the problem. Hell it's just yeah. that you have this challenge. Hell yeah, that is so mm -hmm. true. Like it's a journey of discovery for you both. It's a relationship, not like I know you do, and we're gonna it, totally. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, with um, again going going all over the place because I'm so <laughs> interested in so much what you have to say. Uh, the I've heard you talk before about people having different abilities to absorb and harvest energy from the diet mm -hmm. that we're having. Yeah. Yeah. When, if you take two people and they're eating 1500 calories, but they're absorbing mm -hmm. a different amount there, what variances mm -hmm. are we seeing? And is one indicative of a healthier microbiome, microbiome state? That's a great question. And I love that you asked that because we can apply the context here to healthier really depends on the context. So if a per so, and, and to, to answer, so the first question, it looks like there could be a variability of, of about anywhere from about five to about 15% um, additional energy. So, you know, if we're, so, so that could be, um, you know, upwards of close to 300 extra calories that we're not um, accounting for okay. uh, that we're absorbing. So, so the energy harvesting of the diet, you know, can certainly vary from person to person. And that's, kind of part of the reason why, you know, those calculations are a great place to start, but really what you have to do is look at change over time, you know, right. and then adjust accordingly. But whether or not that's healthier, well, if you are an individual living in a developing country and your energy intake is maybe a thousand calories a day because that's all you have access to, and it's a very fibrous diet, then absolutely is it healthier for you to have uh, a microbiome that is good at energy harvesting. If on the other hand, you're living in an industrialized society, you have access to plenty of food, um, and you are trying to reduce your body weight potentially, that is not necessarily that it's not healthy, it's just that it is an adaptation cool. that is not serving your current goals and your current situation. So I would say that, you know, in, maybe in terms of, instead of saying like healthy versus unhealthy, we could say like how adaptive is it? Yeah, you know, wicked. like. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's I think you know another another way of looking at it, and just something to realize that it's part of the interindividual variability of humans. That is such a good answer, and I love the different. I love that highlight of what is the word healthy, and you could talk about so many facets of nutrition, challenging that as well. Uh, again, and I'm gonna, at the very at the very end, I'm going to um, tell people to go and read that article. But the health at every size and the in, and the intuitive eating. It's really like what is healthy. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I, I must not forget. So someone did put this question to me. Um, uh -huh. and it's a really good question. Uh, so, hey, Louis, thanks so much for your invitation uh, to ask questions for Gabrielle. I'd like to know whether whole grains, so there's two questions here. One, mm -hmm. I'd like to know whether whole grains are good fermentable carbs for the gut or whether the anti-nutrients should be avoided. Mm, yes. So the anti-nutrients, this was, I think, 
uh, spearheaded by maybe like the paleo group because they were like, don't eat legumes <laughs> and things like that. They have anti In between muscle ups. Like. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And it's like way to take something that is, uh, it's again, okay, do these things actually exist? Yes. But do we ingest them in doses and in manners that make them relevant? No. So yes. whole grain, yeah. So whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, all excellent sources of microbe accessible carbohydrates. When we're looking at things like phytates and oxalates, um, I'm trying to think what else that other people are asking about, like lectins, those are uh, in some cases, they are made by the plant to be a protective mechanism so that the plant is not eaten into extinction by other organisms. So in some cases, if you're putting these things on like a cell culture model, they can induce an inflammatory response. And then people say like, oh, these things are inflammatory. Or they could potentially buy nutrients if you eat a whole bunch of them. Like if okay. all you're eating is lentils, then it could potentially be problematic. But it's also just because all you're eating is lentils. Right. <laughs> um, you know, so that's where we end up with some, some nutrient deficiencies. But if you are processing those foods, which we do, we don't eat dry beans, we soak them, we cook them, you're really reducing the, the anti-nutrient content and you're eating them also in amounts in an overall varied diet that's so low that you really don't have to be concerned about that. So just be careful, you know, when we're taking things, looking at a cell culture model versus a mouse model versus actual human model, you know, um, and then trying to do, can we find, and then the other thing is, okay, let's look at the other hand. Let's look for evidence to say that a person who's eating a varied diet that's high in plant matter has nutrient, has, has a clinical nutrient deficiencies. I mean, <laughs> wow, well, you have that study that shows me that occurs because of anti-nutrients, then I will change my opinion right. based on the evidence, but we just don't have the evidence to show that. Br yeah, fantastic answer. And I've, do you think then that, that maybe this is an opportunity as well, before I get on to the next question, mm -hmm. to also sort of reassure people that the evidence on sweeteners, because that's one where the research on sweeteners may be totally impractical when we apply it to humans. Yes. Is that the case? Well, you know, and I think, so there is newly emerging data looking at, um, you know, in expanding on the role of neurons in the gut and how they might interact with neurons in the brain when we're eating something that tastes sweet versus when we're eating okay. something that is a nutritive sweetener. And again, the, if we're looking in rodent models, we have to be very careful because we're still just looking at mechanisms. We're not necessarily looking at human outcomes. And even if we have some sensing in the gastrointestinal tract, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to have a behavior as an outcome for that. But we may have strong drives in, in, in one direction or another that you know we have to um, manage with our developed frontal lobes here that rodents don't have. But in terms of looking at the, you know, from it, looking at it from a human health standpoint, from a gut microbiome standpoint, when we're looking at human models, it looks like the effects of sweeteners when ingested, even up to the acceptable daily intake range, which is really high, are negligible. Cool. So, it, so you know, and and obviously, again, it's a spectrum. You can certainly surpass that amount and potentially see issues. But if you're a person who's like thinking that they have to like completely remove all the artificial sweeteners, or like, can I have a you know a few cans of diet coke or something a day? Yes, 
where we would see you know, a, a potential issue is if you're using a lot of sugar alcohols, those can have a laxative effect and certainly do interact with the microbiome because with the exception of erythritol, they're all highly fermentable. Okay. So whether that's a bad thing, I think is just based on context and your you know, personal response to them. But you know, they're looking at aspartame, even though we see, again, we're looking at a cell culture model, looks awful, animal models look, uh, but we right. put it into a human model. We look at gastrointestinal um, hormones. We look at effects on the gut microbiome and, um, you know, we still have room for more studies, but even in aspartame, we've looked at three human studies so far looking at aspartame alone and no effect on the gut microbiome. So um, that's where it stands right now. Awesome. So I think people can be, can feel uh, more confident that it's okay to ingest those things in moderation, just like everything else. Thank you. Uh, now, this person's second question was, what's um, your nutrition recommendation concerning autoimmune thyroid disorders uh, like Hoshimoto? And uh, it was Morbus Basto. And I had to Google that, uh, which is the, which is Basto's disease, which is known for most people listening to this. I might pronounce that wrong. It's Graves' disease, which also affects the thyroid. So Hoshimoto's and Graves' disease. Yeah. So this is another area that it gets, unfortunately, a little bit into like woo territory where people are like, there's a specific <laughs> autoimmune diet. You know, we can actually like reduce the, the uh, activity of your immune system with your diet. And, you know, quite often they'll have like specific foods that they'll recommend or tell you to avoid like, you know, gluten, because in rodent models and individuals with celiac disease, gluten enhances uh, or gluten causes an autoimmune response. Um, uh, or they'll pick other, I'm trying to think of other things like people will say like, I don't know, like nightshades or, you know, things that have like potentially inflammatory plant compounds. Right. So they just take anything, uh, dose irrelevant, and they're like, you know, don't <laughs> eat these foods. When in fact, if you have, you know, if, if you want to work with a registered dietitian for medical nutrition therapy for a disease, that's one thing. Find a registered dietitian who is evidence-based because unfortunately some of them still kind of go off that on that direction and they do like the autoimmune protocol and things like that, or these diets that were, that just don't have research to support the recommendations or even really mechanisms to explain why they might work, unfortunately. Right. Um, but you know, if, if, if that's something that you would want to do, they can give you disease specific medical nutrition therapy. But there is not a diet that would treat that disease, you know, and, and, and so it really is about working with your endocrinologist and your GP to make sure that your medications are uh, correctly dosed and then following just an overall prudent dietary approach, you know, like the Mediterranean style, diet. <laughs> so, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's pretty much always just going to come back to those basics that food is food is not medicine and that might upset some people but it's not medicine is medicine medicine treats disease food has a number of other uh super helpful applications certainly can potentially be preventative for some forms of disease and it can help 
us to withstand, you know, if we do have a disease, it can help us, um, if it's uh, something that's, you know, we can fight off, it can help to uh, maintain normal functioning of the body and the immune system. But food is not medicine. Food is food, medicine is medicine. They can work together really well. Sometimes they don't work together so well. So they do have an interaction, but we just need to make sure that we're keeping that separate. Brilliant. And that's really important too, because people can get caught up in this line of trying to use food for that medicinal purpose and lose the time where they could genuinely be treated by a medical professional. Yes. Oh my gosh. Say it a thousand times because that is, <laughs> it's actually really sad to see that that actually happens, you know, in individuals who are battling cancer and it's like, you know, you, it's, it's a very difficult decision to make, to go down that route and to take drugs and, and, you know, use, the pharmaceutical means, but um, they're, you know, those are going to be some of the most effective interventions. And you could, like you said, lose time um, that you could have been going through, you know, really effective treatment and also eat a really prudent diet. Like you don't yeah. have to eat one another. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's, I mean, yeah. it's like the person you were saying about earlier who came to you and was like, I think this person was selling to me like on the back of me not feeling good. And it's the, yeah. that same, like these people who, if you take an example of someone who chooses not to go for medication and treat themselves with food, it's not because they're a bad person. They've like right. been sold this idea and they, their intention has just been misplaced through someone manipulating that, which is so awful. Yep, yep. So what, okay, on a more exciting note, yep. what things are you excited about? So imagine this is like the end of an episode. So it's the end of, I've never watched Game of Thrones. I don't know I'm talking about. <laughs> it. it was the end of like the 10th series of Game of Thrones. And mm -hmm. we're, but, this, but nutrition and gut health related. What yes. things can we be excited about in the next 10 series of the gut health world? Is there, are you like in the next 10 years, this is going to come out in the literature. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> well, I will tell you, I have been, um, I've been a reviewer for some manuscripts that are going to come out soon. We are going to start seeing, seeing much more research in the micro, microbiome and exercise, which is exciting. Okay. And um, the microbiome and resistance training specifically. So I actually um, was, uh, I, I collaborated with a faculty member um, out in Tennessee um, on, a, on a potential project looking at resistance training in the microbiome. So, you know, timelines might change with everything going on, but that was super exciting to, to see that there's just this huge gap in the literature. So I'm really excited to see more information coming out about uh, the microbiome in, in exercise in general, but really with resistance training. So that's one of the big areas. And then I think looking into um, the other thing that's starting that's starting to emerge is that we're starting to see some replicable patterns emerging in certain disease states and the microbes that might be present or absent. So hopefully we can start, um, you know, parsing that out. And and we're probably many, 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 many years from looking at, you know, a causative relationship. But even if there's a correlational relationship, that would be really exciting to see. But first, what has to happen is sort of an overhaul to um, the, the the research side of things, which I hope is going to come out, um, you know, in the next few years, that really they need to start um, coming up with more um uh, similar methodologies between uh, labs, you know, okay. and starting to collaborate more so that you can have these findings be be replicated 
and we can say, okay, this was all measured in the same way in a similar population, and we all got the same results. And so now this is something that we can be really confident about moving away from the things, you know, we used to have like, you know, dysbiosis was something we said all the time, or we had your, your F to B ratio di dictated, you know, whether you were obesogenic or not. And we realized like, oh, that was kind of, it was almost like somatotypes, you know, like endomorph, mesomorph. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's where we were just a few years ago in the microbiome. Okay, think about how long ago that was. You know, we've been like that's debunked. So we're still a little bit behind. <laughs> the um, maybe well, um, maybe you can help me out. Uh huh. So I watched the podcast um, with you speaking to Eric Helms, and you mentioned yeah. that about somatotypes, and then Eric Helms said something like, "They are not stupid." It's, it was something like how they're interpreted or something like that that was incorrect. I think, well, it could be that, well, assuming that there is just like one body type that a person has that like, that's what they're going to be stuck with and that you yeah. can like look at it and see. And so like with the enterotypes is what we had. They, we would look at, at we look at it at the phylum level and that's like looking at vertebrates versus invertebrates. Okay. It's like, that's so general. That's not helpful <laughs> at all, you know? And, and so to say like, Oh, if you have too many formicutes, that's obesogenic. Well, lactobacilli are part of formicutes and, and, and we know that lactobacilli are beneficial and um, you know, could they are, do they harvest energy? Well, yeah, but you know, does that necessarily mean that they're bad? And like, there are some, uh, you know, in, in um, the bacteroidetes group that could harvest energy. And so it was kind of like, Oh, we got that, we got that super wrong. Um, but it was just because it was the limitations of the way that we were able to um, analyze the microbiome at that time. And okay. so now we have better, uh, more sensitive uh, methods. And so we can look at the species level in some cases, but that's just what we had at the time. That's what we were going off of. Wicked. And we had, and you've adapted, which is amazing. So you're also working on an amazing project uh, with Shannon Beer. That's yes. correct, right? Uh, called uh -huh. Bridging the Gap. And thank you so much for recommending that to me because it's amazing and so needed. Like reading it was incredible. Anyone listening now, I'm going to put the link to that in this because you have got to read it. But can you give anyone listening a little bit of a taster of what that project is? Yes. So Bridging the Gap is intended to improve the dialogue between to, uh, two or maybe more camps that are sort of emerging of fitness practitioners who feel very strongly one way or the other about weight neutral versus weight focused approaches. So what we're trying to do, and, and so that was sort of the first step. Now we're realizing this project is growing. We actually have two more articles that are going to be uh, published soon. We actually are um, submitting them for, for copyright. And so it's a little bit of a you know time intensive process, but okay. we are starting to develop um, our idea of sort of a new paradigm and framework of coaching. So not only just bridging the gap between those two camps, but also bridging the gap, the gap between coaches and clients. Brilliant. Because we have good intentions. We want the best for our clients, 
but we're not always doing a great job of asking our clients what they need from us. And we're not always giving the clients the respect that they deserve in their expertise about themselves. Okay. So we need to be having a dialogue there as well to be able to form alliances with our clients and move away from the traditional coaching model, which is a more um, sort of coaches the expert giving the information to the client and the client just has to do what they say, moving away from the idea of how do I get my clients to do what I want them to do? To how do I help my clients do the things that they want to do because they've identified their goals based on their values? And how do I facilitate their growth from working with me uh, in an alliance to working independently, knowing that they can reach their goals on their own. So we're trying to bridge that gap and then also bridge the gap between these two camps of, you know, the weight neutral approach versus the weight focused approach. Both sides have merits. They have completely different, you know, different applications and different purposes. It's not that one side is better than the other right. or one side is more effective than the other. It's like arguing that resistance training is better than physical therapy or physical therapy is better than resistance training. We use some of the same modalities, but obviously the goal is very different and we can't say that one is better. They have completely different applications. And instead of yelling at each other from across this divide, we need to start finding where we have a common ground and improve the dialogue and see how we can lift the entire industry up yeah. and, and, you know, and apply these in a prudent and, and conscientious way. So the first two articles on bridging the gap were sort of, I, I, I started, the, I wrote the first one just thinking it was gonna be one article because <laughs> I was frustrated that people who didn't really know anything about intuitive eating were debating intuitive eating. And I was like, guys, there's a whole book. There's a book you can read. There's lots and lots of research on this. There's so much out there. Yeah. And I was like, this is, you know, this is something that, that people are arguing about, but but they, but using also, you know, and it's it's when we're when we're using auto regulation, and so I just saw this area where I where I could potentially say, hey, you know what we have in common? This thing called intuition, which is maybe Hell not yeah. a good term to use, but but this is what we're doing. We're both doing. We're all doing this. And then I was talking to Shannon about it, and then we started brainstorming, you know, and and thinking about like this is just a symptom of a much larger problem. Right. And that's when we came into to the second uh, uh, article, which is looking at the dangers of dietary restraint and looking at some of the issues with the current coaching paradigms and with how we are, how we, how we um, refer to foods as good or bad. And, and you know, this idea of like a hundred percent adherence or a hundred percent compliance and, and some of the ways that we as practitioners are causing some of these problems. We have to admit that we are part of a, pro of the problem, uh, uh and, and potentially, um, you know, serving as catalysts for, for disordered eating habits. And then in the third and the fourth installments, we're going to be talking about how this paradigm needs to shift, how it's already been shifting, and then sort of views for the future, um, you know, where it can go if we want to work together and, and you know, kind of join forces and see where both sides are have good intentions and want the best. And we're just kind of going at it from maybe two different angles. I think those articles are going to speed it up so much because like you said, there's such a misunderstanding of what those sides are, especially intuitive eating and health at every side. So yeah. before, like if you're listening to this and you're in a debate, read these articles first before you start to like start fight and realize you're fighting yourself. I'm going to, yes. I've got loads of quotes from the article, but I'm going to choose two of my favorite because I thought they were amazing. The first oh. one, um, only because you just mentioned it, but 
uh, that I love. Intuitive eating is not a diet any more than auto-regulation is a training plan. I love that. You also talk about um, intuitive training, which is great. Mm -hmm. And the other one that I love, there were loads, but informing a client or a patient that they need to lose weight is just as ineffective as being like, you need to reduce your blood pressure. <laughs> like, thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> <laughs> Heard and received. <laughs> um, and hopefully you will be able to come back on with Shannon and we can talk about that because that'd be really interesting. Yep, absolutely. I told her we're and we're going to be on uh, she and I are going to be on a joint podcast next week. We were on a couple when we were in Madrid together. So yeah, this is a I love to have her on because we like bounce everything yes. off of each other. And um, she's just amazing. So everyone who's listening needs to go follow Shannon Beer. Also yes. on Instagram, Shannon Beer underscore. And where can people find you? I'm vitamin PhD and that's on Instagram and Facebook. Um, vitamin nutrition.com is my website, which is really just a list of like all of my podcasts and articles and um, the educational content that I've created that people can buy, or if they want to sign up for the nutrition coaching global mastermind. Um, that is a, a, a new project that I'm serving on the advisory board for with uh, Joe Klimchewski, Eric Helms, um, Paul Revelia, uh, Brian St. Pierre, uh, Eric Trexler, uh, Jen Souders, and Corey Propes. So we are the advisory board and we facilitate discussions about best practices in, in the coaching industry. Um, so we do that monthly now. It's the last Tuesday of every month. So I strongly encourage anyone who is uh, a practitioner to go out and listen um, and, uh, and, and just you know give feedback and whatnot. Like we are here to help you guys. Awesome. Now, um, if you, you probably won't have listened to this before, but there's a final question and it's uh -huh. not on the topic, topic of nutrition. It may, I mean, it okay. might end up being, if I was to give you two extra hours a day and you can do with them whatever you want, mm -hmm. what would you do with those two hours? Um, I would probably spend one of them working on my next master's degree. <laughs> I, think I, I don't have a master's degree yet. I skipped that. So I want to get a master's in clinical health psychology wow. and the other I would use probably to create more webinars. <laughs> yeah. I just want to do so much. I don't have enough time. <laughs> That's such a lovely way to do like to give your two hours. It's not like I train more. I'm not selfish at all. Like, I'll help the world more. <laughs> <laughs> oh that was amazing thank you so much like that was incredible and i want to say thank you again i promised i wouldn't but this has been such an amazingly educative talk and I'm for so even bad. coming on here like absolutely mad i'm mind blown i'm probably going to pass out at the end of this <laughs> <laughs> and it would be like incredible to have you back on uh to, to oh, talk yes. about that as well because it was god just reading through those articles was like wow like i'm trying i have to get my head out of that to talk about this because it's such an incredibly interesting area and it will be so progressive because we'll cut the crap conversations out and we can start everyone working together exactly um, guys thank you so much for listening um that was amazing you'll probably hear my excitement in my voice <laughs> sorry for the sound and the technical stuff at the beginning we negotiated that um <laughs> we both knocked a couple of people out um but thank you thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much Gabrielle, it's been thank wonderful. You so
A huge thanks to Gabrielle for taking so much of her time to get into the exciting science around gut health. Also talking about how to watch out for some of those myths that might be out there, how to navigate the world and especially social media when we're talking about gut health and some really cool practicals there, especially the exciting things to look forward to. I'm really, really personally excited to not only see the development in research around gut health, but also for those next two articles to come out around bridging the gap. And if you haven't already read those, I'll put them in the show notes. You should totally check those out, especially if you're a coach. They're really, really interesting, and I think they're going to be incredibly progressive. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast, guys. It's for you. You are the purpose behind this, and I really appreciate all of your kind words of feedback as well. So please do, if you have the time, leave a review. That would be amazing. If not, enjoy your day. Remember how awesome you are, and I cannot wait to speak to you and hear from you next week. Pow.